he grinned. Apathy, the main symptom of the second phase, was a necessary mechanism of self-defense. Reality dimmed, and all efforts and all emotions were centered on one task, preserving one's own life and that of the other fellow. It was typical to hear the prisoners, while they were being herded back to camp from their work sites in the evening, sigh with relief and say, Well, another day is over. It can be readily understood that such a state of strain, coupled with the constant necessity of concentrating on the task of staying alive, forced the prisoner's inner life down to a primitive level. Several of my colleagues in camp who were trained in psychoanalysis often spoke of a regression in the camp inmate, a retreat to a more primitive form of mental life. His wishes and desires became obvious in his dreams. What did the prisoner dream about most frequently? Of bread, cake, cigarettes, and nice warm baths. The lack of having these simple desires satisfied led him to seek wish-fulfillment in dreams. Whether these dreams did any good is another matter. The dreamer had to wake from them to the reality of camp life and to the terrible contrast between that and his dream illusions. I shall never forget how I was roused one night by the groans of a fellow prisoner who threw himself about in his sleep, obviously having a horrible nightmare. Since I had always been especially sorry for people who suffered from fearful dreams or deliria, I wanted to wake the poor man. Suddenly I drew back the hand which was ready to shake him, frightened at the thing I was about to do. At that moment I became intensely conscious of the fact that no dream, no matter how horrible, could be as bad as the reality of the camp which surrounded us and to which I was about to recall him. Because of the high degree of undernourishment which the prisoners suffered, it was natural that the desire for food was the major primitive instinct around which mental life centered. Let us observe the majority of prisoners when they happened to work near each other and were, for once, not closely watched. They would immediately start discussing food. One fellow would ask another working next to him in the ditch what his favorite dishes were. Then they would exchange recipes and plan the menu for the day when they would have a reunion, the day in a distant future when they would be liberated and returned home. They would go on and on, picturing it all in detail, until suddenly a warning was passed down the trench, usually in the form of a special password or number, The Guard is Coming. I always regarded the discussions about food as dangerous. Is it not wrong to provoke the organism with such detailed and effective pictures of delicacies when it has somehow managed to adapt itself to extremely small rations and low calories? Though it may afford momentary psychological relief, it is an illusion which, physiologically, surely must not be without danger. During the later part of our imprisonment, the daily ration consisted of very watery soup given out once daily and the usual small bread ration. In addition to that, there was the so-called extra allowance, consisting of three-fourths of an ounce of margarine, or of a slice of poor quality sausage, or of a little piece of cheese, or a bit of synthetic honey, or a spoonful of watery jam, varying daily. In calories this diet was absolutely inadequate, especially taking into consideration our heavy manual work and our constant exposure to the cold in inadequate clothing. The sick who were under special care that is, those who were allowed to lie in the huts instead of leaving the camp for work, were even worse off. 
When the last layers of subcutaneous fat had vanished, and we looked like skeletons disguised with skin and rags, we could watch our bodies beginning to devour themselves. The organism digested its own protein, and the muscles disappeared. Then the body had no powers of resistance left. One after another, the members of the little community in our hut died. Each of us could calculate with fair accuracy whose turn would be next, and when his own would come. After many observations, we knew the symptoms well, which made the correctness of our prognoses quite certain. He won't last long, or this is the next one, we whispered to each other. And when, during our daily search for lice, we saw our own naked bodies in the evening, we thought alike, this body here, my body, is really a corpse already. What has become of me? I am but a small portion of a great mass of human flesh, of a mass behind barbed wire, crowded into a few earthen huts, a mass of which daily a certain portion begins to rot, because it has become lifeless. I mentioned above how unavoidable were the thoughts about food and favorite dishes which forced themselves into the consciousness of the prisoner whenever he had a moment to spare. Perhaps it can be understood, then, that even the strongest of us was longing for the time when he would have fairly good food again, not for the sake of good food itself, but for the sake of knowing that the subhuman existence, which had made us unable to think of anything other than food, would at last cease. Those who have not gone through a similar experience can hardly conceive of the soul-destroying mental conflict and clashes of willpower which a famished man experiences. They can hardly grasp what it means to stand digging in a trench, listening only for the siren to announce 9.30 or 10 a.m., the half-hour lunch interval, when bread would be rationed out, as long as it was still available, repeatedly asking the foreman, if he wasn't a disagreeable fellow, what the time was and tenderly touching a piece of bread in one's coat pocket, first stroking it with frozen, loveless fingers, then breaking off a crumb and putting it in one's mouth, and finally, with the last bit of willpower, pocketing it again, having promised oneself that morning to hold out till afternoon. We could hold endless debates on the sense or nonsense of certain methods of dealing with the small bread ration, which was given out only once daily during the latter part of our confinement. There were two schools of thought. One was in favor of eating up the ration immediately. This had the twofold advantage of satisfying the worst hunger pangs for a very short time at least once a day, and of safeguarding against possible theft or loss of the ration. The second group, which held with dividing the ration up, used different arguments. I finally joined their ranks. The most ghastly moment of the twenty-four hours of camp life was the awakening, when, at a still nocturnal hour, the three shrill blows of a whistle tore us pitilessly from our exhausted sleep and from the longings in our dreams. We then began the tussle with our wet shoes, into which we could scarcely force our feet, which were sore and swollen with edema. And there were the usual moans and groans about petty troubles, such as the snapping of wires which replaced shoelaces. One morning I heard someone, whom I knew to be brave and dignified, cry like a child, because he finally had to go to the snowy marching grounds in his bare feet, as his shoes were too shrunken for him to wear. In those ghastly minutes I found a little bit of comfort, a small piece of bread which I drew out of my pocket and munched with absorbed delight. 
Undernourishment, besides being the cause of the general preoccupation with food, probably also explains the fact that the sexual urge was generally absent. Apart from the initial effects of shock, this appears to be the only explanation of a phenomenon which a psychologist was bound to observe in those all-male camps, that, as opposed to all other strictly male establishments, such as army barracks, there was little sexual perversion. Even in his dreams the prisoner did not seem to concern himself with sex, although his frustrated emotions and his finer, higher feelings did find definite expression in them. With the majority of the prisoners, the primitive life and the effort of having to concentrate on just saving one's skin led to a total disregard of anything not serving that purpose, and explained the prisoner's complete lack of sentiment. This was brought home to me on my transfer from Auschwitz to a camp affiliated with Dachau. The train which carried us, about two thousand prisoners, passed through Vienna. At about midnight we passed one of the Viennese railway stations. The track was going to lead us past the street where I was born, past the house where I had lived many years of my life, in fact, until I was taken prisoner. There were fifty of us in the prison car, which had two small, barred peepholes. There was only enough room for one group to squat on the floor, while the others, who had to stand up for hours, crowded round the peepholes. Standing on tiptoe and looking past the others' heads through the bars of the window, I caught an eerie glimpse of my native town. We all felt more dead than alive, since we thought that our transport was heading for the camp at Mauthausen, and that we had only one or two weeks to live. I had a distinct feeling that I saw the streets, the squares, and the houses of my childhood with the eyes of a dead man, who had come back from another world and was looking down on a ghostly city. After hours of delay the train left the station, and there was my street. My street. The young lads who had a number of years of camp life behind them, and for whom such a journey was a great event, stared attentively through the peephole. I began to beg them, to entreat them to let me stand in front for one moment only. I tried to explain how much a look through that window meant to me just then. My request was refused with rudeness and cynicism. You lived here all those years? Well, then, you have seen quite enough already. In general, there was also a cultural hibernation in the camp. There were two exceptions to this, politics and religion. Politics were talked about everywhere in camp, almost continuously. The discussions were based chiefly on rumors which were snapped up and passed around avidly. The rumors about the military situation were usually contradictory. They followed one another rapidly, and succeeded only in making a contribution to the war of nerves that was waged in the minds of all the prisoners. Many times, hopes for a speedy end to the war, which had been fanned by optimistic rumors, were disappointed. Some men lost all hope, but it was the incorrigible optimists who were the most irritating companions. The religious interest of the prisoners, as far and as soon as it developed, was the most sincere imaginable. The depth and vigor of religious belief often surprised and moved a new arrival. Most impressive in this connection were improvised prayers or services in the corner of a hut, or in the darkness of the locked cattle truck in which we were brought back from a distant worksite, tired, hungry, and frozen in our ragged clothing. In the winter and spring of 1945, there was an outbreak of typhus, which infected nearly all the prisoners. The mortality was great among the weak, who had to keep on with their hard work as long as they possibly could. 
The quarters for the sick were most inadequate. There were practically no medicines or attendants. Some of the symptoms of the disease were extremely disagreeable, an irrepressible aversion to even a scrap of food, which was an additional danger to life, and terrible attacks of delirium. The worst case of delirium was suffered by a friend of mine who thought that he was dying and wanted to pray. In his delirium he could not find the words to do so. To avoid these attacks of delirium, I tried, as did many of the others, to keep awake for most of the night. For hours I composed speeches in my mind. Eventually I began to reconstruct the manuscript which I had lost in the disinfection chamber of Auschwitz, and scribbled the key words in shorthand on tiny scraps of paper. Occasionally a scientific debate developed in camp. Once I witnessed something I had never seen, even in my normal life, although it lay somewhat near my own professional interests, a spiritualistic seance. I had been invited to attend by the camp's chief doctor, also a prisoner, who knew that I was a specialist in psychiatry. The meeting took place in his small private room in the sick quarters. A small circle had gathered, among them, quite illegally, the warrant officer from the sanitation squad. One man began to invoke the spirits with a kind of prayer. The camp's clerk sat in front of a blank sheet of paper without any conscious intention of writing. During the next ten minutes, after which time the seance was terminated because of the medium's failure to conjure the spirits to appear, his pencil slowly drew lines across the paper, forming, quite legibly, ve vi. It was asserted that the clerk had never learned Latin, and that he had never before heard the words ve victis, woe to the vanquished. In my opinion, he must have heard them once in his life without recollecting them, and they must have been available to the spirit, the spirit of his subconscious mind, at that time, a few months before our liberation and the end of the war. In spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in a concentration camp, it was possible for spiritual life to deepen. Sensitive people who were used to a rich intellectual life may have suffered much pain. They were often of a delicate constitution. But the damage to their inner selves was less. They were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner riches and spiritual freedom. Only in this way can one explain the apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy makeup often seem to survive camp life better than did those of a robust nature. In order to make myself clear, I am forced to fall back on personal experience. Let me tell what happened on those early mornings when we had to march to our work site. There were the shouted commands, Detachment, forward march, left two, three, four, left two, three, four, left two, three, four, left two, three, four, first man about, left and left and left and left, caps off. These words sound in my ears even now. At the order, caps off, we passed the gate of the camp, and searchlights were trained upon us. Whoever did not march smartly got a kick, and worse off was the man who, because of the cold, had pulled his cap back over his ears before permission was given. We stumbled on in the darkness, over big stones and through large puddles, along the one road leading from the camp. The accompanying guards kept shouting at us and driving us with the butts of their rifles. Anyone with very sore feet 
supported himself on his neighbor's arm. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, "'If our wives could see us now! I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what is happening to us.' That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind, and as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew— each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky, where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way, in such a position man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. For the first time in my life I was able to understand the meaning of the words, The angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. In front of me a man stumbled, and those following him fell on top of him. The guard rushed over and used his whip on them all. Thus my thoughts were interrupted for a few minutes. But soon my soul found its way back from the prisoner's existence to another world, and I resumed talk with my loved one. I asked her questions, and she answered. She questioned me in return, and I answered. Stop! We had arrived at our work site. Everybody rushed into the dark hut in the hope of getting a fairly decent tool. Each prisoner got a spade or a pickaxe. Can't you hurry up, you pigs? Soon we had resumed the previous day's positions in the ditch. The frozen ground cracked under the point of the pickaxes, and sparks flew. The men were silent, their brains numb. My mind still clung to the image of my wife. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she was still alive. I knew only one thing, which I have learned well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in his spiritual being, his inner self. Whether or not he is actually present, whether or not he is still alive at all, ceases somehow to be of importance. I did not know whether my wife was alive, and I had no means of finding out. During all my prison life there was no outgoing or incoming mail. But at that moment it ceased to matter. There was no need for me to know. Nothing could touch the strength of my love, my thoughts, and the image of my beloved. 
Had I known then that my wife was dead, I think that I would still have given myself, undisturbed by that knowledge, to the contemplation of her image, and that my mental conversation with her would have been just as vivid and just as satisfying. Set me like a seal upon thy heart. Love is as strong as death. This intensification of inner life helped the prisoner find a refuge from the emptiness, desolation, and spiritual poverty of his existence by letting him escape into the past. When given free reign, his imagination played with past events, often not important ones, but minor happenings and trifling things. His nostalgic memory glorified them, and they assumed a strange character. Their world and their existence seemed very distant, and the spirit reached out for them longingly. In my mind I took bus rides, unlocked the front door of my apartment, answered my telephone, switched on the electric lights. Our thoughts often centered on such details, and these memories could move one to tears. As the inner life of the prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence he sometimes even forgot his own frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summit glowing in the sunset through the little barred windows of the prison carriage, he would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up all hope of life and liberty. Despite that factor, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. In camp, too, a man might draw the attention of a comrade working next to him to a nice view of the setting sun shining through the tall trees of the Bavarian woods, as in the famous watercolor by Dürer, the same woods in which we had built an enormous hidden munitions plant. One evening, when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, dead tired, soup bowls in hand, a fellow prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out to the assembly grounds and see the wonderful sunset. Standing outside, we saw sinister clouds glowing in the west, and the whole sky alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colors from steel blue to blood red. The desolate gray mud huts provided a sharp contrast while the puddles on the muddy ground reflected the glowing sky. Then, after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, How beautiful the world could be! Another time we were at work in a trench. The dawn was grey around us. Grey was the sky above, grey the snow in the pale light of dawn, grey the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad, and grey their faces. I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopeless, meaningless world, and from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. At that moment, a light was lit in a distant farmhouse, which stood on the horizon as if painted there in the midst of the miserable grey of a dawning morning in Bavaria. Et lux in tenebris lucet, and the light shineth in the darkness. 
For hours I stood hacking at the icy ground. The guard passed by, insulting me, and once again I communed with my beloved. More and more I felt that she was present, that she was with me. I had the feeling that I was able to touch her, able to stretch out my hand and grasp hers. The feeling was very strong. She was there. Then, at that very moment, a bird flew down silently and perched just in front of me, on the heap of soil which I had dug up from the ditch, and looked steadily at me. Earlier I mentioned art. Is there such a thing in a concentration camp? It rather depends on what one chooses to call art. A kind of cabaret was improvised from time to time. A hut was cleared temporarily. A few wooden benches were pushed or nailed together, and a program was drawn up. In the evening, those who had fairly good positions in camp, the capos and the workers who did not have to leave camp on distant marches, assembled there. They came to have a few laughs, or perhaps to cry a little, anyway to forget. There were songs, poems, jokes, some with underlying satire regarding the camp. All were meant to help us forget, and they did help. The gatherings were so effective that a few ordinary prisoners went to see the cabaret in spite of their fatigue, even though they missed their daily portion of food by going. During the half-hour lunch interval, when soup, which the contractors paid for and for which they did not spend much, was ladled out at our worksite, we were allowed to assemble in an unfinished engine room. On entering, everyone got a ladleful of the watery soup. While we sipped it greedily, a prisoner climbed onto a tub and sang Italian arias. We enjoyed the songs, and he was guaranteed a double helping of soup, straight from the bottom. That meant with peas. Rewards were given in camp not only for entertainment, but also for applause. I, for example, could have found protection, how lucky I was never in need of it, from the camp's most dreaded capo, who for more than one good reason was known as the murderous capo. This is how it happened. One evening I had the great honor of being invited again to the room where the spiritualistic seance had taken place. There were gathered the same intimate friends of the chief doctor, and, most illegally, the warrant officer from the sanitation squad was again present. The murderous capo entered the room by chance, and he was asked to recite one of his poems, which had become famous, or infamous, in camp. He did not need to be asked twice— and quickly produced a kind of diary from which he began to read samples of his art. I bit my lips till they hurt, in order to keep from laughing at one of his love poems, and very likely that saved my life. Since I was also generous with my applause, my life might have been saved even had I been detailed to his working party, to which I had previously been assigned for one day, a day that was quite enough for me. It was useful, anyway, to be known to the murderous capo from a favorable angle, so I applauded as hard as I could. Generally speaking, of course, any pursuit of art in camp was somewhat grotesque. I would say that the real impression made by anything connected with art arose only from the ghost-like contrast between the performance and the background of desolate camp life. I shall never forget how I awoke from the deep sleep of exhaustion on my second night in Auschwitz, roused by music. The senior warden of the hut had some kind of celebration in his room, which was near the entrance of the hut. Tipsy voices bawled some hackneyed tunes. 
Suddenly there was a silence, and into the night a violin sang a desperately sad tango, an unusual tune not spoiled by frequent playing. The violin wept, and a part of me wept with it, for on that same day someone had a twenty-fourth birthday. That someone lay in another part of the Auschwitz camp, possibly only a few hundred or a thousand yards away, and yet completely out of reach. That someone was my wife. To discover that there was any semblance of art in a concentration camp must be surprise enough for an outsider, but he may be even more astonished to hear that one could find a sense of humour there as well. Of course, only the faint trace of one, and then only for a few seconds or minutes. Humour was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It is well known that humour, more than anything else in the human make-up, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. I practically trained a friend of mine who worked next to me on the building site to develop a sense of humour. I suggested to him that we would promise each other to invent at least one amusing story daily about some incident that could happen one day after our liberation. He was a surgeon and had been an assistant on the staff of a large hospital, so I once tried to get him to smile by describing to him how he would be unable to lose the habits of camp life when he returned to his former work. On the building site, especially when the supervisor made his tour of inspection, the foreman encouraged us to work faster by shouting, Action! Action! I told my friend, One day you will be back in the operating room performing a big abdominal operation. Suddenly an orderly will rush in, announcing the arrival of the senior surgeon by shouting, Action! Action! Sometimes the other men invented amusing dreams about the future, such as forecasting that during a future dinner engagement they might forget themselves when the soup was served and beg the hostess to ladle it from the bottom. The attempt to develop a sense of humour and to see things in a humorous light is some kind of a trick learned while mastering the art of living. Yet it is possible to practice the art of living even in a concentration camp, although suffering is omnipresent. To draw an analogy, a man's suffering is similar to the behaviour of gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. It also follows that a very trifling thing can cause the greatest of joys. Take as an example something that happened on our journey from Auschwitz to the camp affiliated with Dachau. We had all been afraid that our transport was heading for the Mauthausen camp. We became more and more tense as we approached a certain bridge over the Danube, which the train would have to cross to reach Mauthausen, according to the statement of experienced travelling companions. Those who have never seen anything similar cannot possibly imagine the dance of joy performed in the carriage by the prisoners when they saw that our transport was not crossing the bridge and was instead heading only for Dachau. And again, what happened on our arrival in that camp after a journey lasting two days and three nights? There had not been enough room for everybody to crouch on the floor of the carriage at the same time. The majority of us had to stand all the way, 
while a few took turns at squatting on the scanty straw which was soaked with human urine. When we arrived, the first important news that we heard from older prisoners was that this comparatively small camp, its population was two and a half thousand, had no oven, no crematorium, no gas. That meant that a person who had become a Muslim could not be taken straight to the gas chamber, but would have to wait until a so-called sick convoy had been arranged to return to Auschwitz. This joyful surprise put us all in a good mood. The wish of the senior warden of our hut in Auschwitz had come true. We had come, as quickly as possible, to a camp which did not have a chimney, unlike Auschwitz. We laughed and cracked jokes in spite of enduring all we had to go through in the next few hours. When we knew arrivals were counted, one of us was missing, so we had to wait outside in the rain and cold wind until the missing man was found. He was at last discovered in a hut where he had fallen asleep from exhaustion. Then the roll call was turned into a punishment parade. All through the night and late into the next morning we had to stand outside, frozen and soaked to the skin after the strain of our long journey. And yet we were all very pleased. There was no chimney in this camp, and Auschwitz was a long way off. Another time we saw a group of convicts pass our worksite. How obvious the relativity of all suffering appeared to us then. We envied those prisoners their relatively well-regulated, secure and happy life. They surely had regular opportunities to take baths, we thought sadly. They surely had toothbrushes and clothes brushes, mattresses, a separate one for each of them, and monthly mail bringing them news of the whereabouts of their relatives, or at least of whether they were still alive or not. We had lost all that a long time ago. And how we envied those of us who had the opportunity to get into a factory and work in a sheltered room. It was everyone's wish to have such a life-saving piece of luck. The scale of relative luck extends even further. Even among those detachments outside the camp, in one of which I was a member, there were some units which were considered worse than others. One could envy a man who did not have to wade in deep, muddy clay on a steep slope emptying the tubs of a small field railway for twelve hours daily. Most of the daily accidents occurred on this job, and they were often fatal. In other work parties the foremen maintained an apparently local tradition of dealing out numerous blows, which made us talk of the relative luck of not being under their command, or perhaps of being under it only temporarily. Once, by an unlucky chance, I got into such a group. If an air raid alarm had not interrupted us after two hours, during which time the foreman had worked on me especially, making it necessary to regroup the workers afterwards, I think that I would have returned to camp on one of the sledges which carried those who had died or were dying from exhaustion. No one can imagine the relief that the siren can bring in such a situation— not even a boxer who has heard the bell signifying the finish of a round and who is thus saved at the last minute from the danger of a knockout. We were grateful for the smallest of mercies. We were glad when there was time to de-louse before going to bed, although in itself this was no pleasure, as it meant standing naked in an unheated hut where icicles hung from the ceiling. But we were thankful if there was no air raid alarm during this operation and the lights were not switched off. If we could not do the job properly, we were kept awake half the night. 
The meagre pleasures of camp life provided a kind of negative happiness, freedom from suffering, as Schopenhauer put it, and even that in a relative way only. Real positive pleasures, even small ones, were very few. I remember drawing up a kind of balance sheet of pleasures one day, and finding that in many, many past weeks I had experienced only two pleasurable moments. One occurred when, on returning from work, I was admitted to the cookhouse after a long wait, and was assigned to the line filing up to prisoner cook F. He stood behind one of the huge pans, and ladled soup into the bowls which were held out to him by the prisoners who hurriedly filed past. He was the only cook who did not look at the men whose bowls he was filling, the only cook who dealt out the soup equally, regardless of recipient, and who did not make favourites of his personal friends or countrymen, picking out the potatoes for them, while the others got watery soup skimmed from the top. But it is not for me to pass judgment on those prisoners who put their own people above everyone else. Who can throw a stone at a man who favours his friends, under circumstances when, sooner or later, it is a question of life or death? No man should judge, unless he asks himself in absolute honesty whether in a similar situation he might not have done the same. Long after I had resumed normal life again, that means a long time after my release from camp, somebody showed me an illustrated weekly, with photographs of prisoners lying crowded on their bunks, staring dully at a visitor. Isn't this terrible? The dreadful staring faces, everything about it. Why? I asked, for I genuinely did not understand. For at that moment I saw it all again, at five a.m., it was still pitch dark outside. I was lying on the hard boards in an earthen hut where about seventy of us were taken care of. We were sick and did not have to leave camp for work. We did not have to go on parade. We could lie all day in our little corner in the hut and doze and wait for the daily distribution of bread, which of course was reduced for the sick, and for the daily helping of soup, watered down and also decreased in quantity. But how content we were! happy in spite of everything. While we cowered against each other to avoid any unnecessary loss of warmth, and were too lazy and disinterested to move a finger unnecessarily, we heard shrill whistles and shouts from the square where the night shift had just returned and was assembling for roll call. The door was flung open, and the snowstorm blew into our hut. An exhausted comrade, covered with snow, stumbled inside to sit down for a few minutes but the senior warden turned him out again. It was strictly forbidden to admit a stranger to a hut while a check-up on the men was in progress. How sorry I was for that fellow, and how glad not to be in his skin at that moment, but instead to be sick and able to doze on in the sick quarters. What a life-saver it was to have two days there, and perhaps even two extra days after those. All this came to my mind when I saw the photographs in the magazine. When I explained, my listeners understood why I did not find the photograph so terrible. The people shown on it might not have been so unhappy after all. On my fourth day in the sick quarters, I had just been detailed to the night shift when the chief doctor rushed in and asked me to volunteer for medical duties in another camp containing typhus patients. Against the urgent advice of my friends, and despite the fact that almost none of my colleagues offered their services, I decided to volunteer. 
I knew that in a working party I would die in a short time, but if I had to die there might at least be some sense in my death. I thought that it would doubtless be more to the purpose to try and help my comrades as a doctor than to vegetate or finally lose my life as the unproductive laborer that I was then. For me this was simple mathematics, not sacrifice. But secretly the warrant officer from the sanitation squad had ordered that the two doctors who had volunteered for the typhus camp should be taken care of till they left. We looked so weak that he feared that he might have two additional corpses on his hands rather than two doctors. I mentioned earlier how everything that was not connected with the immediate task of keeping oneself and one's closest friends alive lost its value. Everything was sacrificed to this end. A man's character became involved to the point that he was caught in a mental turmoil which threatened all the values he held and threw them into doubt. Under the influence of a world which no longer recognized the value of human life and human dignity, which had robbed man of his will and had made him an object to be exterminated, having planned, however, to make full use of him first, to the last ounce of his physical resources, under this influence the personal ego finally suffered a loss of values. If the man in the concentration camp did not struggle against this in a last effort to save his self-respect, he lost the feeling of being an individual, a being with a mind, with inner freedom and personal value. He thought of himself then as only a part of an enormous mass of people. His existence descended to the level of animal life. The men were herded, sometimes to one place, then to another, sometimes driven together, then apart, like a flock of sheep without a thought or a will of their own. A small but dangerous pack watched them from all sides, well versed in methods of torture and sadism. They drove the herd incessantly, backwards and forwards, with shouts, kicks, and blows. And we, the sheep, thought of two things only, how to evade the bad dogs, and how to get a little food. Just like sheep that crowd timidly into the center of a herd, each of us tried to get into the middle of our formations. That gave one a better chance of avoiding the blows of the guards who were marching on either side and to the front and rear of our column. The central position had the added advantage of affording protection against the bitter winds. It was therefore in an attempt to save one's own skin that one literally tried to submerge into the crowd. This was done automatically in the formations. But at other times it was a very conscious effort on our part, in conformity with one of the camp's most imperative laws of self-preservation, do not be conspicuous. We tried at all times to avoid attracting the attention of the SS. There were times, of course, when it was possible and even necessary to keep away from the crowd. It is well known that an enforced community life, in which attention is paid to everything one does at all times, may result in an irresistible urge to get away, at least for a short time. The prisoner craved to be alone with himself and his thoughts. He yearned for privacy and for solitude. After my transportation to a so-called rest camp, I had the rare fortune to find solitude for about five minutes at a time. Behind the earthen hut where I worked, and in which were crowded about fifty delirious patients, there was a quiet spot in a corner of the double fence of barbed wire surrounding the camp. A tent had been improvised there with a few poles and branches of trees in order to shelter a half-dozen corpses, 
the daily death rate in the camp. There was also a shaft leading to the water pipes. I squatted on the wooden lid of this shaft whenever my services were not needed. I just sat and looked out at the green flowering slopes and the distant blue hills of the Bavarian landscape, framed by the meshes of barbed wire. I dreamed longingly, and my thoughts wandered north and northeast in the direction of my home, but I could only see clouds. The corpses near me, crawling with lice, did not bother me. Only the steps of passing guards could rouse me from my dreams, or perhaps it would be a call to the sick bay, or to collect a newly arrived supply of medicine for my hut, consisting of perhaps five or ten tablets of aspirin, to last for several days for fifty patients. I collected them and then did my rounds, feeling the patient's pulses and giving half tablets to the serious cases. But the desperately ill received no medicine. It would not have helped, and besides it would have deprived those for whom there was still some hope. For light cases I had nothing, except perhaps a word of encouragement. In this way I dragged myself from patient to patient, though I myself was weak and exhausted from a serious attack of typhus. Then I went back to my lonely place on the wood cover of the water shaft. This shaft, incidentally, once saved the lives of three fellow prisoners. Shortly before liberation, mass transports were organized to go to Dachau, and these three prisoners wisely tried to avoid the trip. They climbed down the shaft and hid there from the guards. I calmly sat on the lid, looking innocent and playing a childish game of throwing pebbles at the barbed wire. On spotting me, the guard hesitated for a moment, but then passed on. Soon I could tell the three men below that the worst danger was over. It is very difficult for an outsider to grasp how very little value was placed on human life in camp. The camp inmate was hardened, but possibly became more conscious of this complete disregard of human existence when a convoy of sick men was arranged. The emaciated bodies of the sick were thrown on two-wheeled carts, which were drawn by prisoners for many miles, often through snowstorms, to the next camp. If one of the sick men had died before the cart left, he was thrown on anyway. The list had to be correct. The list was the only thing that mattered. A man counted only because he had a prison number. One literally became a number, dead or alive. That was unimportant. The life of a number was completely irrelevant. What stood behind that number and that life mattered even less. The fate, the history, the name of the man. In the transport of sick patients that I, in my capacity as a doctor, had to accompany from one camp in Bavaria to another, there was a young prisoner whose brother was not on the list and therefore would have to be left behind. The young man begged so long that the camp warden decided to work an exchange, and the brother took the place of a man who, at the moment, preferred to stay behind. But the list had to be correct. That was easy. The brother just exchanged numbers with the other prisoner. As I have mentioned before, we had no documents. Everyone was lucky to own his body, which, after all, was still breathing. All else about us, that is, the rags hanging from our gaunt skeletons, was only of interest if we were assigned to a transport of sick patients. The departing Muslims were examined with unabashed curiosity to see whether their coats or shoes were not better than one's own. After all, their fates were sealed. But those who stayed behind in camp, who were still capable of some work, 
had to make use of every means to improve their chances of survival. They were not sentimental. The prisoners saw themselves completely dependent on the moods of the guards, playthings of fate, and this made them even less human than the circumstances warranted. In Auschwitz, I had laid down a rule for myself which proved to be a good one, and which most of my comrades later followed. I generally answered all kinds of questions truthfully, but I was silent about anything that was not expressly asked for. If I were asked my age, I gave it. If asked about my profession, I said, Doctor, but did not elaborate. The first morning in Auschwitz, an SS officer came to the parade ground. We had to fall into separate groups of prisoners, over forty years, under forty years, metal workers, mechanics, and so forth. Then we were examined for ruptures, and some prisoners had to form a new group. The group that I was in was driven to another hut, where we lined up again. After being sorted out once more and having answered questions as to my age and profession, I was sent to another small group. Once more we were driven to another hut and grouped differently. This continued for some time, and I became quite unhappy, finding myself among strangers who spoke unintelligible foreign languages. Then came the last selection, and I found myself back in the group that had been with me in the first hut. They had barely noticed that I had been sent from hut to hut in the meantime, but I was aware that in those few minutes fate had passed me in many different forms. When the transport of sick patients for the rest camp was organized, my name, that is, my number, was put on the list, since a few doctors were needed. But no one was convinced that the destination was really a rest camp. A few weeks previously the same transport had been prepared. Then, too, everyone had thought that it was destined for the gas ovens. When it was announced that anyone who volunteered for the dreaded night shift would be taken off the transport list, eighty-two prisoners volunteered immediately. A quarter of an hour later the transport was cancelled. But the eighty-two stayed on the list for the night shift. For the majority of them this meant death within the next fortnight. Now the transport for the rest camp was arranged for the second time. Again, no one knew whether this was a ruse to obtain the last bit of work from the sick, if only for fourteen days, or whether it would go to the gas ovens or to a genuine rest camp. The chief doctor, who had taken a liking to me, told me furtively one evening at a quarter to ten, I have made it known in the orderly room that you can still have your name crossed off the list. You may do so up till ten o'clock. I told him that this was not my way, that I had learned to let fate take its course. I might as well stay with my friends, I said. There was a look of pity in his eyes, as if he knew. He shook my hand silently, as though it were a farewell, not for life, but from life. Slowly I walked back to my hut. There I found a good friend waiting for me. You really want to go with them? he asked sadly. Yes, I am going. Tears came to his eyes, and I tried to comfort him. Then there was something else to do, to make my will. Listen, Otto, if I don't get back home to my wife, and if you should see her again, then tell her that I talked of her daily, hourly. You remember. Secondly, I have loved her more than anyone. Thirdly, the short time I have been married to her outweighs everything, even all we have gone through here. Otto, where are you now? 
Are you alive? What has happened to you since our last hour together? Did you find your wife again? And do you remember how I made you learn my will by heart, word for word, in spite of your childlike tears? The next morning I departed with a transport. This time it was not a ruse. We were not heading for the gas chambers, and we actually did go to a rest camp. Those who had pitied me remained in a camp where famine was to rage even more fiercely than in our new camp. They tried to save themselves, but they only sealed their own fates. Months later, after liberation, I met a friend from the old camp. He related to me how he, as camp policeman, had searched for a piece of human flesh that was missing from a pile of corpses. He confiscated it from a pot in which he found it cooking. Cannibalism had broken out. I had left just in time. Does this not bring to mind the story of death in Tehran? A rich and mighty Persian once walked in his garden with one of his servants. The servant cried that he had just encountered death, who had threatened him. He begged his master to give him his fastest horse, so that he could make haste and flee to Tehran, which he could reach that same evening. The master consented, and the servant galloped off on the horse. On returning to his house, the master himself met death and questioned him. Why did you terrify and threaten my servant? I did not threaten him. I only showed surprise in still finding him here when I planned to meet him tonight in Tehran, said death. The camp inmate was frightened of making decisions and of taking any sort of initiative whatsoever. This was the result of a strong feeling that fate was one's master, and that one must not try to influence it in any way, but instead let it take its own course. In addition, there was great apathy, which contributed in no small part to the feelings of the prisoner. At times, lightning decisions had to be made, decisions which spelled life or death. The prisoner would have preferred to let fate make the choice for him. This escape from commitment was most apparent when a prisoner had to make the decision for or against an escape attempt. In those minutes in which he had to make up his mind, and it was always a question of minutes, he suffered the tortures of hell. Should he make the attempt to flee? Should he take the risk? I, too, experienced this torment. As the battlefront drew nearer, I had the opportunity to escape. A colleague of mine who had to visit huts outside the camp in the course of his medical duties wanted to escape and take me with him. Under the pretense of holding a consultation about a patient whose illness required a specialist's advice, he smuggled me out. Outside the camp, a member of a foreign resistance movement was to supply us with uniforms and documents. At the last moment, there were some technical difficulties, and we had to return to camp once more. We used this opportunity to provide ourselves with provisions, a few rotten potatoes, and to look for a rucksack. We broke into an empty hut of the women's camp, which was vacant, as the women had been sent to another camp. The hut was in great disorder. It was obvious that many women had acquired supplies and fled. There were rags, straw, rotting food, and broken crockery. Some bowls were still in good condition, and would have been very valuable to us, but we decided not to take them. We knew that lately, as conditions had become desperate, they had been used not only for food, but also as wash-basins and chamber-pots. There was a strictly enforced rule against having any kind of utensil in the hut. 
However, some people were forced to break this rule, especially the typhus patients, who were much too weak to go outside even with help. While I acted as a screen, my friend broke into the hut and returned shortly with a rucksack which he hid under his coat. He had seen another one inside which I was to take, so we changed places, and I went in. As I searched in the rubbish, finding the rucksack and even a toothbrush, I suddenly saw, among all the things that had been left behind, the body of a woman. I ran back to my hut to collect all my possessions, my food bowl, a pair of torn mittens inherited from a dead typhus patient, and a few scraps of paper covered with shorthand notes, on which, as I mentioned before, I had started to reconstruct the manuscript which I lost at Auschwitz. I made a quick last round of my patients, who were lying huddled on the rotten planks of wood on either side of the huts. I came to my only countryman, who was almost dying, and whose life it had been my ambition to save in spite of his condition. I had to keep my intention to escape to myself, but my comrade seemed to guess that something was wrong. Perhaps I showed a little nervousness. In a tired voice he asked me, "'You, too, are getting out?' I denied it, but I found it difficult to avoid his sad look. After my round I returned to him. Again a hopeless look greeted me, and somehow I felt it to be an accusation. The unpleasant feeling that had gripped me as soon as I had told my friend I would escape with him became more intense. Suddenly I decided to take fate into my own hands for once. I ran out of the hut and told my friend that I could not go with him. As soon as I had told him with finality that I had made up my mind to stay with my patients, the unhappy feeling left me. I did not know what the following days would bring, but I had gained an inward peace that I had never experienced before. I returned to the hut, sat down on the boards at my countryman's feet, and tried to comfort him. Then I chatted with the others, trying to quiet them in their delirium. Our last day in camp arrived. As the battlefront came nearer, mass transports had taken nearly all the prisoners to other camps. The camp authorities, the capos, and the cooks had fled. On this day an order was given that the camp must be evacuated completely by sunset. Even the few remaining prisoners, the sick, a few doctors, and some nurses, would have to leave. At night the camp was to be set on fire. In the afternoon the trucks which were to collect the sick had not yet appeared. Instead the camp gates were suddenly closed and the barbed wire closely watched, so that no one could attempt an escape. The remaining prisoners seemed to be destined to burn with the camp. For the second time my friend and I decided to escape. We had been given an order to bury three men outside the barbed wire fence. We were the only two in camp who had strength enough to do the job. Nearly all the others lay in the few huts which were still in use, prostrate with fever and delirium. We now made our plans. Along with the first body we would smuggle out my friend's rucksack, hiding it in the old laundry tub which served as a coffin. When we took out the second body we would also carry out my rucksack, and on the third trip we intended to make our escape. The first two trips went according to plan. After we returned, I waited while my friend tried to find a piece of bread so that we would have something to eat during the next few days in the woods. I waited. Minutes passed. I became more and more impatient as he did not return. 
After three years of imprisonment, I was picturing freedom joyously, imagining how wonderful it would be to run toward the battlefront. But we did not get that far. The very moment when my friend came back, the camp gate was thrown open. A splendid, aluminium-colored car on which were painted large red crosses slowly rolled onto the parade.